And we entrust this time to our Lady as we say, Hail Mary, full of grace, the Lord is with thee. Blessed art thou amongst women, and blessed is the fruit of thy womb, Jesus. Holy Mary, Mother of God, pray for us sinners, now and to the hour of our death. Amen. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Awesome. So the wonderful Shelley is passing around notes right now. Um, these are different quotes from Theology of the Body that I'm going to be going over this evening. And um, I want you to have them because there's a lot of words involved, and I'm going to read some to you, but also you can have them for prayer for later on. So um, just keep them. Don't lose them. It'll probably help you in some way, shape, or form. Okay. <laughs> okay, so to start off, um, there's a really beautiful picture to my right or left. This is of a wedding at St. Patrick's Church in New Orleans. It's one of my best friend's weddings. Um, full fact, I'm like right there. Um, anyway, so um, I was in her house on Sunday, and we were having coffee Sunday morning, and um, I saw her picture on the wall, and I was like, Katie, can I use your picture on my talk on Thursday? And she's like, of course. So she sent it to me. But I love this picture, which they have blown up as this huge canvas on the wall in their house, because to me, this shows the vision of what we're talking about, right? That there's a sacramentality to the human person, to human love, but specifically within marriage, right? We see this as the gift of a marriage grace to God. Like, this is what we're trying to get to. Um, that God the Father uses the gift of human love to call us to himself. That's what this picture portrays, at least to me. So, if you get bored during my talk, you can just look at that and, I don't know, imagine it or something. But, there you go. Okay. Page one. So, what I told myself was that I wasn't going to put too many quotes here. And, yeah, well, look at that worked out. So, I started, though, with the end of the last section. So, just to review, last time we talked about what we call original man. So, man does he exist in the beginning before the fall. Man and woman were able to look at each other with what Pope John Paul II says, all the peace of the interior gaze. Meaning when they looked at each other, there was this freedom, this, this freedom to behold the other and to see the other as a gift. And so too, in that moment, to realize one's call to be offered as a gift, right? That it was this mutual thing. And so this first quote on the front page of your notes, if you have me, um, it's a little long. Do y'all have a notes? Any more notes out there? You want to pass around? No? That's it. Okay. Well, I'm going to read to you, so. It's a little long, but it's worth it. The fact that theology also includes the body should not astonish or surprise anyone who is conscious of the mystery and reality of the incarnation. Through the fact that the Word of God became flesh, the body entered theology. That is, the science that has divinity for its object. I would say through the main door. The incarnation and the redemption that flows from it has also become a definitive source of the sacramentality of marriage, which we will deal with more extensively at a suitable time. The questions raised by contemporary men are also those of Christians, of those who prepare for the sacrament of marriage, or of those who already live in marriage, which is the sacrament of the Church. These are not only the questions of the sciences, but even more so the questions of human life. So many human beings and so many Christians search of marriage for the fulfillment of their vocation. So many want to find in it the way of salvation and holiness. On the road of this vocation, how indispensable is a deepened consciousness of the meaning of the body and its masculinity and femininity. How necessary is an accurate consciousness of the spousal meaning of the body, of its generative meaning, given that all that forms the content of the life of the spouses must always find its full and personal dimension in shared life, in behavior, in feelings. And this all the more against the background of a civilization that remains under the pressure of a materialistic and utilitarian way of thinking and evaluating. So what he's basically saying is, we all have questions about what it means to be human. And he's talking about how science can answer these questions in a certain capacity, because we are in the material world. We're body and soul, so we're material and spirit. It's an integration. What he's trying to say is science can't give you every answer that you're looking for about what it means to be human, and that we should look a little bit deeper. He's talking about the reality that the incarnation, like if we seem to be shocked that the body is included in theology, it's like, without the body, our theology is not possible. Our entire theology is dependent upon the incarnation. 
that God took on human flesh and became fully man while still remaining fully God. I don't know the last time you reflected on the reality of the incarnation, but I encourage you to, because it's sort of absurd. <laughs> Mind him. What? God became man fully. Continuing, he says, Contemporary biophysiology can offer much precise information about human sexuality, so like hormone levels, arousal curves, different things like that. But he's saying, nevertheless, the knowledge of the personal dignity of the human body and of sex must still be drawn from other sources. A particular source is God's own word, which contains the revelation of the body, the revelation that goes back to the beginning. How significant it is that in his answer to all these questions, Christ orders man to return in some way to the threshold of his theological history. He orders him to place himself at the boundary between original innocence, happiness, and the inheritance of the first fall. By doing so, he does not want to say that the way in which he leads man, male and female, in the sacrament of marriage, namely the way of the redemption of the body, must consist in retrieving this dignity, in which the true meaning of the human body, its meaning as personal and of communion, is fulfilled at the same time. I totally typed that wrong, sorry. But he's trying to say that in the sacrament of marriage, in the redemption of the body, we have to go back to the beginning here to retrieve this dignity. So what does that mean? Last time we talked about man and woman existing as before the fall. We talked about the freedom that they experience as spouses. What he's saying is not that we can go back and that in our existence we can experience the fullness of that freedom in the exact same way. It's impossible because we exist after the fall. What he's saying is like inviting us as a father and he's telling us a story of our history and he's saying, come with me and look back and look at what it was in the beginning to remember what God's original plan was. From that place, that threshold, he calls it, then you can take into marriage, the sacrament of marriage, what God intended for the relationship between spouses. So what today is going to be largely about is um, Christ appealing to the human heart. If you have your notes in the front, and if you don't, this is from the Gospel of Matthew. So a large what we're talking about today is the Gospel of Matthew, specifically the Sermon on the Mount. And in that particular place, um, it says, You have heard that it was said, you shall not commit adultery. But I say to you, whoever looks at a woman to desire her in a reductive way has already committed adultery with her in his heart. So this entire presentation basically is about what the heck is desire? How does that connect with Jesus saying? Is it bad to have desires? Is it like why is he saying if someone looks at a woman with desire? So we have to break down what he is talking about when he's talking about desire. Um, first of all, the word I'm going to use often ethos. You've never heard of that word, it's okay. I mean, until today, I still was like, what the heck is he talking about? But today I found where he defined it. So ethics is like the inner form or the soul of human morality. It's like, you know, the interior place where it all takes place. It's the spirit of the law instead of the letter. Okay, think of it like that. So if you turn the page to page two, if you have the notes, um, what John Paul II is trying to say is that in this quote, when he says that, you know, you shall not commit adultery. Yes, you already know that because you've read the stories of your people. And that's what God gave to the people in the Old Testament in the beginning. But he's making something new. He's saying something, adding on to this. The question is, is he adding on to it or is he fulfilling it? Because then there's a quote we'll talk about where Jesus often says, I came, right, not to abolish the law, but to fulfill it. He came to fulfill it. So what does that mean? So Christ, what he's doing here is he's appealing to the inner man. Whenever I say inner man, interior, the heart, all these things, what we're trying to remind you is that each of you, each of us, myself included, we have an interior. You think all the time. Most of your thoughts, only you and God, know what they are, right? This is you being invited to remember that whatever your vocation is, your vocation is to give a gift of self, right? The best gift of self that you can offer is one in which you know who you are. To offer a gift that is full, right? I'm not saying perfect. I'm not saying without any problems or struggles because we're all human. You're not going to get married when you're perfect, right? You're never going to get married. But to know who you are, to be aware of your struggles, to be aware of your gifts, and knowing that self-knowledge is really important for you to offer a full gift of self. So... Speaking about what he means when he says he doesn't come to abolish law, but to fulfill it, this is his answer basically to that. It's his bringing about this sermon on the mount and explaining it in more detail. 
So Christ, John Paul II, says, wants us not to dwell on the example in itself of adultery, but also to enter into the Satan's full ethical and anthropological sense. So, basically, he wants to propose to us the order and meaning that God the Father, the Creator, or also the legislator, the one who gave the law to the Israelites, who gave the tablets to Moses, right? The Ten Commandments, the Decalogue. He wants to bring us back to what God intended it to be from the beginning. Okay. Important thing to explain. Anthropology and ethics are reciprocally related. They're very, very important. And some of you are like, I don't even know what that means. Okay. A proper ethics, think of ethics as like what you're doing, the way of acting in a philosophical sense. It, ethics norms that guide your way of acting in some way, shape, or form. All of these, they can only be good if they flow from an adequate anthropology. What the heck is an anthropology? So anthropology is like the study of what it means to be human, the philosophy of what it means to be a human person, okay? so. How I understand the human person is going to determine what I think I can do with, to, about, around a human being, right? For example, I'm studying bioethics. So, because of my understanding of a human person, based on this, a personalistic anthropology, and the human person's dignity, there would be certain things in the OR that I would say you can do, and certain things I'd say you can't do. Why would I say that? The things that say you can do, I'd say you can because they're in line with the dignity of a human person and with man's eternal end. The things you can't do, I would say you can't do those things because they do not fall in line with the dignity of the human person and his eternal end. They do not agree with the fact that man is not just a mere animal. He is not just biophysical responses, right? He is more than that. There's something deeper. That's what Christ is trying to bring us to. So he's distinguishing between the man of original innocence, the one we talked about last time in the fall, I mean, before the fall, in the garden, versus the man of concupiscence. He's going to use the word concupiscence a lot. Um, and when he talks about concupiscence, what he's referring to is that pull, since the fall, within each of us, um, with certain desires, they say, of the flesh, the pride of life, um, it's that pull within us that is a direct result of our disintegration as human beings. Before the fall, we could see the good, and when we saw the good, we reverenced the good and appreciated it as such. Since the fall, because of the disintegration, right, it affects the relationship between man and himself, between man and God, and therefore also between man and woman, and man and all of creation. So man of concupiscence is that man. He is the one that is affected as a result of the fall by a very deep disintegration of his person. His spirit and his body do not always agree, right? So, in Genesis 3, which John Paul II is noticing, I have it in your notes, he seems to highlight particularly the key moment in which in man's heart doubt is cast on the gift. Man turns his back on the Father, even if we do not find the same of God in the account, by casting doubt in his heart on the deepest meaning of the gift, that is, on love as the specific motive of creation and of the original covenant, man turns his back on God love, on the Father. He, in some sense, casts him from his heart. At the same time, therefore, he detaches his heart and cuts it off, as it were, from that which comes from the Father. John Paul II later refers to being alienated from original love. He says that man and woman develop a sense of fear before God, that the fear is mature, and that the fear was not there before. It wasn't there before because they weren't alienated from original love, because they hadn't yet chosen to detach themselves from the love of the Father. So, okay, to make it real for you for a second, we talked about this last time, but all of you, every single day, you're going to be facing decisions, usually when you're idle, and what you're going to be thinking about, and your future, and the plans you have for your life, and a lot of you are probably freaking out, myself good about what the heck I'm doing with my life, right? We each have choice points along the way, right? And we're going to react to the things in front of us, in one way or another, based on what we believe about God the Father. So if I believe that God the Father is good, if I believe that he is love, I believe that he is faithful, then I'm going to be living through the virtue of hope. I'm going to make certain kinds of decisions. I'm going to receive certain gifts from the Father. I'm going to be walking in a certain trust. Now, the struggle is not bad. This is what it means to be human. But if I'm struggling with if God is actually all those things I just said, and I doubt his goodness, then that's when I start grasping for things instead of receiving them. Does that make sense? 
I'm afraid that my father will not provide for me, and so I grasp. I think that I have to take happiness on my own. I'm brought back to the same thing in the garden, right? They looked at the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, and it says in certain translations that the enemy told them he will become like gods. Like gods, right? That's tempting to all of us, and they were tempted. And they thought, wait, we'll become like gods? Why doesn't this father of ours who loves us, why doesn't he want that for us if that's so good? And the enemy lies, he's the father of lies, and we chose to believe him over the father who's true, who is love, right? Because of this, because of a free choice the man and woman made, John Paul II says that man loses the sense of his right to participate in the perception of the world, in the divine vision of the world and of his own humanity, which gave him a deep peace and joy in living the truth and value of his body in all of its simplicity transmitted to him by the creator. So basically what this all is coming back to is, you know, this quote we're talking about, do not commit adultery, it's like, don't, shoot, sorry, um, do not commit adultery, and do not even look at a woman in a certain way of committing adultery with her in your heart. Like, that's a bold statement. Like, what are you saying, Jesus? Like, you're talking about my thoughts? Like, come on. Like, I didn't do anything. It's just my thoughts. Right? Common human response. John Paul II is saying that in the Old Testament, God the Father is meeting all of us everywhere, as in our spiritual antecedents, our family, like Moses, Abraham, all of them, right? And what happened is God gave them the Ten Commandments. And what they looked like were, do this, do this, do this. The first two are what to do to order yourself with God. And then the next ones are, do not do this, do not do this, do not do this, do not do this. Do not commit adultery, right? Do not steal. Do not murder. Okay. If you have a little child and there's an interstate and you're standing next to it, Let's say the child thinks it's a good idea to run across the interstate. What do you think about that? No, right? Isn't that good? Are you going to sit there and reason with the child and explain them all the ideas of why it wouldn't be wise for them? No, because they can't yet perceive that they're not ready, right? But all you can say is do not do that. So too, because of the hardness of our hearts, God was leaning us where we were and he was saying do not commit adultery. But for them, and look, this is for us, it seeps in all the time. It's, for them, it's a legalistic, very external understanding, right? So it's like, if a man and a woman have relations, then, and this woman's not his wife, then I know that we can say that was adultery and you can't do that. But everything else kind of goes. What Christ is saying is, you're missing the whole point. Like, God wants something more for man and woman than just this external physical act, that can't happen, but everything else can happen around there. What he's saying is that man has to stop and enter into his consciousness, into his heart, and ask for just like the light of the Holy Spirit to reveal to him the interior dimension of his own heart. What does he really want, and who, if he's a man, like who is woman to be for me, and is woman who is man to be for me, and who am I to be for the other? So, what he also he talks about um, shame, you know, we talked about this a little bit right at the very end last time. Shame is this sort of borderline experience. Before the fall, we didn't have it, but it has sort of a twofold meaning according to John Paul II. Number one, it's a projection, basically, from the other person that all of a sudden one realizes, like, oh, wait, I am not safe in front of this person. I don't know how this person is going to look at me. Right? Because of that, it's a, it's a good thing because it preserves in an interior way, like the gift of the human body. Um, but you see, because of that, there means that there's a threat. We only want to protect ourselves when there's a threat. The threat is found where? The threat is found in the gaze of the other person. Now, clarify. I'm not saying the gaze of other people is a threat, in as much as the potential exists for each of us on this side of the fall that we can use other people even in our gaze as to how we look upon them. And we're going to develop what that means in the next 30 minutes. So, John Paul II is saying that, in this last quote on page two, um, this original self-donation where they could offer themselves with full trust, 
Hold trust to the other. Where one's identity was solid, one's diversity as male and female was respected, this communion, which was there before the fall, now it's as if sexuality, so that differentiation between man and woman, it's as if that has become an obstacle in man's personal relationship with woman and woman's personal relationship with man. Instead of the absolute trust where a woman is created and man looks at her and he's like, this that last is bone of my bones, flesh of my flesh, and they were naked before each other without shame. Instead of that, that absolute trust is gone. And now it's replaced with shame. When I talk about absolute trust, you really don't understand completely what I'm saying because none of us have ever experienced that. But you all know what I'm talking about when I'm talking about shame. This is just a reminder that God, the Father, did not intend that for us. That's what we're experiencing. So why would Christ bring this up if he doesn't want us to sort of like, you know, sit in our misery and be like, well, thanks for letting us know. It was great back then. Now it's just dark. No, there's a point to it. So keep coming with me. The next scripture verse that he brings up um, is from Genesis 3.16, where God tells the woman, so this is important, God tells the woman, your desire shall be for your husband, but he will dominate you. Yeah, that's a result of the fall. What a really good example? Uh, pornography. That was easy. Right? For man and woman. Completely the relationships are absolutely screwed up. And it's this in a nutshell. But this is that woman will desire her husband, and yet still, even in that desire for a love, he will dominate her. And John Paul II says that sometimes, before the domination even happens, right, as part of that desire, a woman will, if she, because everyone in the room who's a woman, you know you have a gift of beauty. You might not believe it, but you also know there are certain ways that you can dress and speak and act to get a man's attention. John Paul II says it's a twofold thing. Like, a woman also has an awareness that sometimes a woman seeks almost to seduce from man attention uh, because she desires love, right? All of this stuff we do, y'all, it's only because we want love. Right? You get that. Yeah, we just get really confused with what authentic love looks like. So, cue the 80s talk about love as a battlefield, but uh, John Paul II said, the heart has become a battlefield between love and concupiscence. Does this mean that we should distrust the human heart, he asks? No. It is only to say that we must remain in control of it. Okay. I'm reading a lot of quotes, so I'm going to read you more, but I want to, like, make this concrete for you for a second. There's a lot of women on the planet, and a lot of men on the planet, right? Everyone's attracted to a lot of different people. This is human, this is normal, this is great. Beautiful call to marriage. A part of your discovery of your vocation is that now, you, like we talked about choice points. Like, every single day, all of you in front of me, your men and your women, you're experiencing attractions. It's what do you do with the attractions? Do you, when you receive an attraction, do you allow it somehow in your inner heart to be something where you still see the person as a whole, right? That's what we talk about, about authentic love. We see the person as a whole. When we talk about concupiscence and it moving into the space of lust, what we're talking about is almost like picking apart a person's body. So like maybe you're attracted to someone's eyes. You think they're beautiful. And that's like, I'm just being really super simple. But... Any body part you're attracted to, if you let that consume you and somehow disassociate that from the reality that it's a person, whether a man or a woman with a story, right, then you're letting yourself experience some kind of pleasure but devoid of like respecting them as a whole. Does that make sense? The goal is that we want to respect a person as a whole. So too, we want to be respected as a whole person, right? That's what he's talking about here. He's talking about the fact that by the way, if you're not married yet, this is not wasted time. Everything comes back to, are you allowing, and there's this book, it's called Father Lies, and you should read it, by a guy named Michael O'Brien. He asks, in this book, the main character is asked by this Padre Pio figure. The Padre Pio figure's like, hey, how are your gates? And he's like, my gates? Of what? He's like, the gates of your heart. And he's like, oh, they're battered, but they're holding firm. And later on, you see this character received a letter when he was a young boy from sort of a mentor figure in his life. And he had written in this letter, and he had said, always have truth stand guard at the gates of your heart. 
Always have truth safeguard at the gates of your heart. Ladies and gentlemen, what are you letting in? And are you testing your truth? And what are you letting out? If you're saying certain things to people in your life, especially if you're a man and you're talking to a woman or a woman you're talking to a man, is truth testing that? Do you really mean that? Can you back that up with your whole person or is it just words? Right? And what are you letting in? Um, what are you watching? What are you listening to? All those kinds of things. This is important because it shapes our mind, so it shapes our intellect, so it shapes our will, so it shapes our heart. Um, when he talks about concupiscence, he talks about this reality that what lust does is it restricts us, right? What the culture wants you to believe is that lust equals passion equals good. This is very important to understand. The church loves passion. Oh my God, God made that, so they're pretty much a big fan of it, okay? Lust and passion are not the same thing. Lust is a passion that is divorced from the whole of the other person. It's what can you do for me to make me feel pleasure. It's what can I get from this experience. Right now we're talking about sexual relations in a particular way, right? What can I get from this experience that is pleasurable to me? Which means I don't really care about you as much as I care about me. That's what we play utilitarian. It flips it on its head, right? What he's trying to say is that that's not what God wanted from the beginning. So that's what he's bringing up. If you look at a woman lustfully, you've already committed adultery with her in your heart. Because it's that adultery, any act of adultery, any act of being unfaithful, all external acts, never just happens. No man or woman wakes up one day and they just go and like commit adultery because they thought it was a good idea. There was a path that led to that. There were decisions that they made. There were thoughts. It starts always when we're talking about it. It starts in our minds, which is our hearts. We have to test what's happening. Is it in line with truth? Is it in line with the vows we've taken or is it not? So he's saying, hey, it's not just the action. It's got to go deeper. When he's talking about this quote about man will dominate woman, um, this is sort of top middle issue, page three. He says, the main point is perhaps not that it above all a woman who becomes an object of desire on the part of the man, but rather, as we stressed before, that the man ought to have been from the beginning the guardian of the reciprocity of the gift and of its true balance. He's basically saying this is why God is focusing on the man with the adultery in the heart. It's not that both folks have not participated this at times, but he's saying from the beginning, man is trusted with the responsibility to guard the garden, right? The most important garden he was supposed to guard was the garden of Eve's heart, her person. He didn't do that, right? He remained silent when the enemy was speaking with her. They both chose in their different ways. John Paul II says that this is an open conflict with this exchange where man in the beginning welcomed woman and femininity as a gift. And instead, that lust, it takes from woman her own gift by this concupiscence, letting your heart be led solely by desire, sexual desire, sexual value, but divorced from the whole person, from who this person is, from who you can be for this other person to offer yourself as a gift. So, um, I'm not going to read you those quotes, but I'm going to encourage them. Uh, what he's trying to say is, look at the Old Testament, see how far that got you. It was a beginning step, but even if you read the wisdom literature, so think of the book of Proverbs, if you ever read that. If you've ever read the book of Sirach, um, as a woman, if you've ever read that, there are certain things that you probably read that you're like, what the heck? Like, you know, it's like, do not look at a shapely woman for by women men have been consumed with fire. Things like that. It literally says that. Okay, what is that, though? That is baby steps. That is, we'd rather you not sin, so instead of looking, we're going to tell you not to look. Okay, I can take that. Like, if that's where you are, seriously, and then included, because everyone's in different places, if that's where you are, if there's certain women that you just can't look at, praise God if you're going to take responsibility. Like, I just can't look at her. But you're not done. Don't stop there. Please do not stop there. Oh my gosh. Keep going. But know that it's okay if you are there. But what Christ is saying is, I'm not going to leave you there. Understand, we're talking about Christ. The man who was saying these words is the man who, in that moment, knew the hearts of every single person he was talking to. He knew the hearts of every single man and woman that had come before that moment. He knew the hearts of every single person that came after that moment, including us. 
So he knew what it would take for man as a human person, man and woman, to be able to love. The Old Covenant, the Old Testament. The New Testament, the New Covenant. What's the difference? The difference is Christ. What he's trying to get to is, he's not just going to give you more rules where he's saying, don't do this, don't do this, don't do this. He's saying, that worked, sort of, but then you need all these other exceptions to the rule. So you have polygamy, like Moses, right? They had many wives. So they couldn't have, like they, they said, do not commit adultery, and yet they still had many wives. That's the way of getting around it, because they were married to all these women, right? You see what I'm saying? It's like children. Like, you have to walk with them in steps. What Christ is saying is like, and now it changes. I came not to abolish that. I'm not killing that law. I'm not saying commit adultery. What I'm saying is it's go deeper than just the external action. I'm saying it has to be a place of the heart. And then he's saying, I'm the one that fulfills it. My existence as God and man is to fulfill this by giving me the grace, the grace to conquer concupiscence. To step by step by making decisions to be in accord with the purity of action, which is only possible when it's reflected from the purity of heart, the interior man. Does that make sense? Okay. Um, that beautiful picture I just showed you of the wedding. Adultery, you know, the like simplest term explaining it, because he's like, adultery is a falsification of the sign. Meaning, oh, cool. it's supposed to be a sign of what? What is marriage the best analogy of? Can someone tell me? I tell you this. The Trinity. The Trinity. Okay, a communion of persons. So God the Father offers himself in love to the Son, who receives that gift and offers himself in love back to the Father, who then, if their love is so real, it's the Holy Spirit. So too, again, an analogy is more just similar than similar. But man offers himself in fullness to woman. Woman receives that gift and offers herself in fullness back to the man. And their love is so real that five minutes later, you can give it a name. Right? Sorry. I just think that's great. So, the communion of persons, like authentic love is such that man and woman, y'all, were created to be an image of God. Meaning, a mirror, a reflection, that when all creation looks at you, they should be reminded of what God looks like. Adultery is so painful and so wrong because it falsifies the sign of God, of who he is. Marriage, right, when it ends in divorce, it's so painful because it falsifies the sign. Right? It falsifies the sign of who God is. I wonder why a lot of people struggle to believe in God. Well, tell me how the marriage rate is going right now. It's not going so well, right? Granted, is this new? No. All of this still relates, right? Adultery only happens. Divorce only happens because a lot of decisions are made along the way. And at some point in time, right, one or both, and we've each experienced this in our lives, right, we, we choose the easier path, right? We choose the easier path. Human love is difficult, y'all. I'm really trying to balance that in these talks because, like, I love human love. Oh my gosh, I love talking about it. It's so beautiful. It's so mysterious. I just like a hundred pages today. It's beauty. But they asked John Paul II. They were like, do you think maybe this is a little bit too idealistic? And so if you thought that, I'm like, Sarah, this is not real. I get it. And I'm not telling you that any of your marriages, mine included, is going to be this like perfect walk through the park and beautiful and like, just gonna marry someone who's COB. Like, it, that doesn't really matter. <laughs> what matters is a relationship with the Lord that allows you to cultivate an awareness of your interior. You come to question Am I looking at this other person and respecting them as a gift? Or am I looking at them as an object? So, there was an uproar with the journalists in the Vatican when John Paul II um, clarified very clearly that. You know, when Jesus was talking about you shall not look at a woman lustfully, or you've committed adultery with her in his heart, he was referring to a certain kind of desire. John Paul II said this desire is not the kind of desire that is and can be very good. So, to put it clearly, sexual desire is good, y'all. God made that. That's beautiful. That is good. What he calls the perennial attraction between masculine and femininity is good. It is holy. It leads to the communion of persons. It is not to be ashamed of. It is not to be denied. One of my best friends called me like last week 
randomly. I haven't seen him in over a year. He's a Benedictine monk in Pennsylvania. His name is now Brother Passion. We used to teach the Algebra Valley together. And um, he's actually teaching right now at the same time. I was like, hey, we teach at the same time. It's so cool. And I was asking him how I was doing, and I was like, well, how can I pray for you? And he said, Sarah, celibus is hard. It's just hard. And, like, he didn't say it in a way that was like, he wasn't going to, you know, man up and fight the battle. He was just being honest. Like, he teaches of the beauty of married love all the time. He knows what man and woman are created for, and yet he feels a call. And I've known him for 15 years and the peace and where he is. But he's like, did you know, one of my spiritual fathers recently told me, it's okay to need human love. Now, I'm in my car, about to get out for work on a Friday morning. <laughs> Oh my gosh, Lamar, I'm so glad that was his name for. I'm like, Lamar, you're the best. Like, I don't even know why you said that, except maybe because I needed to hear it. And he started laughing. He was like, I don't even know why I said that, except I think I need to hear it too. <laughs> I was like, well, good, everybody wins. And then we got off the phone, and I was just reflecting, like, y'all, there is no vocation, like I talked about last night. That is easy. Each of them, we still are required as a human person to look at the people around us, to so those who've been entrusted with, and to ask them, am I referencing them as a gift? And I don't mean this hyper-pious, like, oh my gosh, we're in a box, I'm like, you're perfect. I don't mean that by reverence. I mean respect, I mean love and care for, as they deserve to be, because they are human first and they are dignity, right? It's okay to need human love. Y'all, you were made for that. What we have to do is ask the Father to give us the grace to wait and hope for the gifts he wants to give us, that we can receive it in his time and in his way, so that we can respond to it in the fullness of the gift. And sometimes what you are experiencing is you're standing at the foot of the cross and you feel like your heart is being stretched in the waiting. I get it. I'm with you, okay? But the battle is worth it. The battle for authentic human love is worth it. Right? It's worth it. There's a point. I forgot. So we're going to move on. We'll probably come up. Great. So, um, <coughs> oh, that was point. Jump a second. So he told them, he said, that this concupiscence, this lust, that kind of desire will be for a woman, right? So, again, I just said sexual desire is good. I'm not talking about the healthy, holy, like, sexual desire to see the other person as a gift, which is something you must fight for. I'm talking about if we don't go that far down the line, we just stop at the superficial, and we follow every emotional attraction to the nth degree in our imagination and fantasy and all those other things. John Paul II said that even a man who is married to a woman, that you shouldn't even lust after your own wife, and the whole world went insane. I mean, they were like crucifying him in a sense, right? Not the first time. Yeah, I'm sure it wasn't. He was like, whatever, fine, it's true. But they went crazy. They were like, who are you to say that you can't lust after your wife? Again, because they equated it with passion. It's not the same thing. Most people you know are going to talk about it that way. I'm telling you, it's not the same thing. All those women magazines, I want to burn them. I would never do that. But I'm just saying they drive me nuts. What he is saying, this is in the bottom of page three, is that, in the italics, man must rediscover the lost fullness of his humanity and want to regain it. He says that this fullness, that's what Jesus is talking about in Matthew 5. He's talking about the indissolubility of marriage, but also every other form of shared life of men and women. The shared life that makes up the pure and simple God and of existence. Human life is by its nature co-educational, meaning it's complementary. It takes two, you reveal educare, that word, the root. It draws forth you from yourself as you interact with others. And its dignity, as well as its balance, depends at every moment of history and in every place of geographic longitude and latitude on who she shall be for him and who he for her. He's saying that. Everything depends upon in every moment and every place of history on who woman will be for me and on who man will be for woman. We participate in that every single day. The words spoken by Jesus on the Sermon on the Mount have without any doubt such a universal and deep reach. Only in this way can they be understood on the lips of him who knew to his final death what was in every man, and who at the same time carried within himself the mystery of the redemption of the body, which we'll talk about next time. 
as St. Paul puts it? Should we fear the severity of these words, or rather have confidence in their salvific content and their power? This is the key. I did not give you the stock just to paint a really dark picture and tell you, like, cool, so good luck, have fun, figure that out, whatever I just said. No, I'm saying you're not alone in this. This is why Christ said it, so this is the quote. Christ reminds his listeners who man is, who woman is, and who they are reciprocally, one for the other in the work of creation. The words of Christ testify that the original power, and this also the grace, of the mystery of creation becomes for each one of them the power that is the grace of the mystery of redemption. Does not man, even with concubuses, feel the need to confer on his reciprocal relations the supreme value, which is love. Which is love. Right? What we had at the beginning, we were in a state called original justice or original innocence. It meant we were completely wrapped up in grace. We lost that with the fall. In baptism, it's restored in a certain capacity. But we, how do we access grace? Y'all two main ways is prayer and the sacraments. Prayer and the sacraments, okay? Um, I have a little bit more here about concupiscence. It's basically, if you're still confused, it's this italicized part. This tending has a subjective intensity because, because of the specific attraction that extends its mastery over man's emotive sphere and involves his bodiliness, right? Sort of just giving into your emotions and reactions of your body without stopping to use your intellect and your will. Um, now, okay, real world talk. Uh, man, there's so many things we can say. This is an awesome vision, right? What I said before about the massing job on the second was this too ideal. What he said was, I mean, it's ideal, but he's like, even if they fall short, but they're trying to reach that, that's a pretty good marriage. And he was right. I mean, it definitely gets a lot better option than mostly what the culture's offering you. But we are all going to come into marriage. I can give talks on this, and I'm not married. One day I'm going to be married, I'll be like, oh, how do I live this? It's going to be different. It's going to be new for each of you, right? We have different seasons and ways in which we're called to live these things out. It's not like you just wake up one day and you're like, I have never and will never look at another person, and when I say lustfully, to use to take something from them without remembering who they are, right? It doesn't happen. There is no man or woman on the planet who just in their marriage, they're ever just going to be like perfect and never again probably experience, right? This confuses this pool. What grace does is it helps to reintegrate us to where our spirit helps to lead our body, meaning our heart leads our decisions and our actions, and it becomes more natural. That it's less about this deliberation within my mind, and it becomes more of a habit. There's a really cool video my friend just told me about, Nick Stevens, I'm sorry. But he's talking about like athletes, and I'm all about this. I think sports are great, right? You don't just wake up one day and you can do everything. You have to build up to it. We shouldn't be telling like, okay, this is another topic, but we shouldn't be telling kids like, oh, you can do whatever you want, whenever you want. Like, not without hard work, right? That's the important. And so too, virtue. What is virtue? Virtue is habit building. It's all about self mastery. So what he's saying in this longer quote is he's saying, let's recover the word arrows or that in which is related to be rotted. We usually only hear that in certain spheres, they're not necessarily good. Eros has many different ways that it can be understood. John Paul II says, let's look at it, play it the way he talks about it, and there's a way that we can understand and appreciate it. Eros is the attraction to what is true, to what is good, to what is beautiful. So too, you should be attracted to a person of the opposite sex who is a reflection of me, who is true and good and beautiful. What he's saying is we need the Eros, that attraction and the ethos that inner form of morality, right, to kind of intersect. And where do they intersect? And this is why the whole teaching was about this. They intersect in the human heart. They intersect in your interior. They intersect where you are deciding in your own way who you will be for man and who man will be for you if you're a woman. And if you're a man, who you will be for woman and who woman will be for you. He says that ethics is connected with the discovery of a new order of values and is therefore indispensable. It's the form of errors. It, it comes together with errors. So what he's saying, and I'm going to close with a few stories, but what he's saying is people often are like, well, what they call erotic spontaneity, especially in a mirror, is like, well, we want to do this thing. Okay. Intimate, right? This. Like, can we do that? And they're like, well, how do, are we going to sit there and deliberate like if this is a good idea? That's why he's like, no. The point is that it's a gradual journey. Like, yeah, maybe you will have a conversation. Like, you need to communicate. That's how marriage works. But 
The point is that if you can cultivate in your heart of hearts a way of looking at people, especially the one to whom she has entrusted her heart to you, or that you have entrusted your heart to her, vice versa, right? That it's become natural, that it's a habit, right? That spontaneity arouses when he says it's now mature. And y'all, this, again, love and responsibility, the other book from JP2 that I'm obsessed with. Do not be dismayed if love sometimes follows torturous ways. Grace has the power to make straight the paths of human love. Grace has the power to make straight the paths of human love. The last quote that we have, I want to read the whole thing, but I'm going to give you some stories and keep you by their shorts. If you have to go ahead, eight it's okay. But um, I just think this is so beautiful. This is what you're doing right now. If you're not married, if you are married, this is the invitation today the Lord hopefully can speak to you and say, like, guess what? Today is a new day. This is who you can be. He is calling us. If you look on page five, calling man is not just an exterior thing, right? We're talking about the internet. He should succeed in being really an interior man, able to obey right conscience, able to be the authentic master of his own innermost impulses, like a watchman who watches over a hidden spring and finally able to draw from all these impulses what is fitting for purity of the heart, by building with conscience and consistency the personal sense of the spousal meaning of the body, which opens the interior space of the freedom of the gift. The inner man is called by Christ to reach a more mature and complete evaluation that allows him to distinguish and judge the various movements of his own heart. One should add that this task can be carried out and that it is truly worthy of man. At the price of mastery over these impulses, man reaches that deeper and more mature spontaneity with which his heart by mastering the instincts, rediscovers the spiritual beauty of the sign constituted by the human body in its masculine and femininity. The words of Christ indicate the road toward a mature spontaneity of the human heart that does not suffocate its noble desires and aspirations, but on the contrary, liberates and helps them. What he's saying is that lust misses the mark. Everyone thinks that's what passion is, everyone thinks that's what makes people happy. Guess what? If everyone was happy, they'd be satisfied with that. All these other things that you can think about in the adult sphere that are being created. It's not working. It's because we're missing the mark that there is a more noble, deeper, exacting, and difficult work, right? But that is possible with the power of God. You know, God wants to give you the power to love like he loves. It's called grace. It's beautiful. Two stories. One. Um, again, just to point out that Human love is messy, it is real, it is hard. What you are vowing to, this is a huge part of it, right? The sexual sphere is huge. We all, the sexual sphere is like the, the pinnacle that's built up and surrounded by all the other daily decisions. Like, you know, are you showing up? Are you keeping your word? Are you helping with the dishes? Are you taking care of the kids? Do you communicate? Do you talk? Or is that the only thing you're looking at your spouse for? Because then that's use, right? Then it's just an object. When you take vows to another person, what you're doing is obviously um, giving yourself in fullness. Um, but you don't really know what you're signing up for because none of us can read the future. So, um, story number one. Last week I had the supreme gift of visiting a friend of mine who, she's a month older than I am. She was one of my best friends in college and she is battling stage four brain cancer. Her name is Emily, please pray for her. And I saw her in June, and we hadn't seen each other in several years for different reasons, and we had a really beautiful, beautiful time together. And I was leaving, and she she couldn't really move a lot, and when I like went to hug her, I was pulling back, and she grabbed my face. She just like held my face. And I was realizing, like, oh my gosh, like she's studying me, like she's remembering me. And when I told her bye, I was like, I mean, I just cried for an hour after that. I was like, I don't, you know, I don't know if I'm going to see her again. Last week, um, her little sister texted some of us, and we went to her house, and she's married. Um, her husband's name is Antonio, beautiful couple. And um, she had requested that we do praise and worship, and we had grown up doing this in college. I was in a prayer group that used to go to Medjugorje. Like, I was very blessed to have these friends, but we were, haven't been together, some of us. It's kind of a group until that night. There's like eight of us in this room. She's in the hospital bed, and she's losing her um, her sight and her hearing. So she couldn't recognize me. She can't see me. And I was just really struck by, like, wow. Like, she can't see me. And yet, she sees, I feel like, 
more than what we see right now. Does that make sense? She sees, she really sees what matters and what doesn't, right? And um, when we were praying, she's so great. She's like, started with a prayer. She, she was calling Emily's closed captioning because she couldn't understand the thing we were saying. So she'd tell us what she thought she was hearing, and it was all ridiculous. But one of the words that's on my heart when we were praying, and she told us, if you have any scripture, please read it. It's from Romans 8. Right? We do not know how to pray as we ought, but the Spirit who intercedes for us, right? He intercedes, and we have these sides that are cutie for words. And then it goes to that whole part of the passage about, like, but what can separate us from the love of God? And it says in that passage, like, not even death, right? Death cannot separate us. And I'm reading this to a woman who's battling stage for brain cancer, and I'm like, Jesus, like, come on, like, this is crazy. And yet she was the one who, when we were singing praise and worship, was praising the Lord. I heard her say over and over, thank you, Lord. Thank you, Lord. In Spanish and English. And after I finished reading the passage, I went to sit down. And a total gift from Jesus for me and gift for her. But she knows my voice. And she was like, Sarah, I don't know why, but I understood everything you just read when you read that scripture. That might have been the only thing all night that she read. Not because I'm cool, because Jesus is awesome, right? And he wanted his daughter to hear his word of truth over her, which is that nothing, absolutely nothing, could separate her from his love, right? Talk about vision. Like, talk about seeing. Understand that when they say, blessed are the pure heart, they shall see God, all these things we talked about tonight, it's cultivating a vision that we see reality as it is. Not as the culture says it is, that's mostly made up. We see reality as it is. She that night was teaching all of us how to see. Right? We're still chewing on that. The other thing is, this really cute couple that you see, sorry, I was at their house, it was really convenient. I was like, perfect, can I use your pictures? <laughs> and so, this is them. Um, at the reception. Cool, 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 cute, beautiful, great. Okay, and then there were three. So, they have a little girl, her name is Ellie. It's just the best picture, that's what I really wanted. But it made me think of, you know that image of the Holy Family? It's St. Joseph holding, Mary holding Jesus. I saw that, I was like, Katie, that's that. <laughs> she was like, yeah. This is this, y'all. This is what we're talking, I just want you to have a hope before I close this presentation. <laughs> Like, it is possible. She's gonna probably listen to this talk and be like, Sarah, it makes it sound like we're perfect. They're not perfect at all. And so too, she said I could share the following. This is my last story for you. Um, she happened to be in North Carolina over the summer when I was up there doing some things, and we met for lunch. It was me and her husband, Jerome, and Katie, and their little girl, Ellie. Her middle name is Claire. Her first name is Eliska, which is Polish for Elizabeth. It was her grandmother's name. But Jerome's obsessed with food. So he wants all their kids to have full nicknames so they can call her Eve Claire. Funny. <laughs> 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 anyway, so this is Eve Claire. Um, so we're in this restaurant, and she just had Ellie at the end of December. And I, I don't know if I introduced myself, but I'm gonna suck. Oops, I'm sorry, I came sinister. I also teach. Um, I also teach a form of fertility awareness called Creative Model. So I teach women how to track their cycles, right? I've done it for like five years. It's fascinating, beautiful, it's great. Oh my gosh. Couples learn it, it's awesome. It's hard. It's hard. It's hard. We're sitting at lunch. And Katie, I was sharing with her in my dissertation research, I'm acknowledging the fact that, like, you know, nationally planning, where couples use this to avoid pregnancy, so they would only use times of infertility, and if they want to achieve these time of fertility, um, that's not even 100 percent effective. No contraception is 100 percent effective, but neither is this. And like, dang, like, ooh, it's hard. Like to to be waving the banner of that I do think this is ordered and just and right and the better, actually best option, the only option conducive to human dignity. Yes, but like, it requires people to sacrifice. Like everything we talked about today, and so it's difficult. And that temptation, Sadia or Chadia, however you want to say it, right? That's that thing that tells us that that good that we see, it's almost too good to be true. You experience that in your life anyway? We think that there's certain things we're like, that's too good to be true, and we don't even try for it because we despair that it's even possible. 
and we don't even have hope. We don't even cultivate it. It's a bad mouth for hope. And that marriage, do not give in to a seating even there. Just because it's hard doesn't mean it can't be beautiful. I actually think it's more beautiful because people lean into that space. And so, this is what happens. We're sitting at lunch and I'm telling her about my dissertation research and how it's just hard to like talk to people sometimes and be like, I get that you want the easy way. I understand. I know that this is hard, but it's a, you know, in terms of, anyway, I have so much to say that. We'll talk about that in the fifth talk at the end of the semester. So, I'm like, Katie, it's just hard, you know? And she looks at me and she's like, so, uh, we're pregnant. <laughs> I mean, in the moment of honesty, because she's one of my best friends. I'm happy, of course I'm happy, but I know that was not what they planned. And I just start crying, because she's starting to cry. And I'm like, I'm really happy for you. And I'm really sorry, because I can imagine this is really hard. And it's where she's like, yeah, it's just hard. What are we gonna do? You know, she's a teacher. He has a decent job, but like, they're not rich, and they have a newborn, basically, right? She's like seven, eight months. Yeah. Well, so that's a lot. You can pay for that if you want. But so then, you know, she was processing with that, and I saw her this past weekend, and she told me this story that she said I could share. She was in New Orleans, they were, um, they had a date night. She's like, it's the first time we left Ellie with our friends, so it's kind of hard. But we decided to go to Frenchman Street, which is in New Orleans, like one of my favorite places. They have all these little clubs and things to dance. Okay. So that's what they were doing. And she said she was walking back to her car, um, and it was starting to rain. And this awesome older black man behind me was like, just kind of talking out loud. I love the Orleans people. They're so great. They just talk to you if you're not listening, but you're listening. And so he's like, man, I just love the rain. He's like, I feel like the rain, it's just God shining down blessings on us. Katie's like, me too. It's great, you know? So then she said it started to rain harder, and she was dressed up nicer, so she started to run. Just, you know, let me get to the car fast. She starts to run in the car. So this man shouts out after him. He's like, honey. Don't run from God's blessings. <laughs> Which we're laughing, but she and I are just similar. I'm like, oh my gosh, I would have cried when I got in the car. She's like, I did. I just got out of the car and I started crying. Because, y'all, I say this to say, God speaks to you in everything. God was speaking to her in that moment. And he was saying, I understand that baby number two is hard. It was not a part of your plan. But it's a part of my plan. And I hold you. And I hold Ellie. And I hold her wrong. And I hold a new baby that's with me. Do not run from my blessings. From a random down home. But God does that, y'all. Pray for the grace. That's why I brought up the vision before. Purity is the eyes to see. Pray for the grace to see how God is speaking to you in your everyday life because He is. He's speaking constantly. Right? Ask Him to show you how to see. And I promise you, by the next time I give another talk, if you ask him, you will start to see things. You will start to realize, like, oh, that wasn't just for chance that I heard this song on the radio. Like, God is in everything. And that gave me peace, and that was a gift. And say thank you. So, um, next time, what we were going to talk about, um, last time we talked about original man, so maybe before the fall, as he was in the beginning. This time we talked about historical man, and as he is in history. Next time we'll talk about eschatological man, which is a cool word for the end time, meaning the future resurrection. You want to come to that because everyone like forgets that we say that we believe in the resurrection of the body, and it's kind of a big deal. It's what makes all this make sense. So come if you can, or just listen to the recording. Bring a friend. Let's close in here. In the name of God, and the Holy Spirit, Amen. Father, thank you so much for the gift of tonight. Lord, thank you for all the ways that you have worked and moved and just spoken to your children. Lord, I ask that you would pour yourself out in abundance to each one of us. Lord, that you would help us to know ourselves as you do. That you would give us the grace to see. Lord, please give us the grace to see. To hear your voice and to know how you're speaking. And Lord, give us the grace to fight the hard battles that are worth it, especially the battle for peace.
pure human love, which is exciting and passionate and free. Lord, give us the grace to submit ourselves to your invitation to a fullness, to ask you to lead us in human love and in how to love those you've entrusted to us and who we encounter. We trust all this to the goodness of your Father, and as we say, our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, on earth as it is heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our trespasses, as we forgive those who trespass against us. And we have sown into temptation, but deliver us from evil. Amen. We take Joseph, pray for us. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen.